It seemed like a good idea at the time. Three days in ultimate seclusion. The flakes that started to fall on your way were hardly worth notice. But now the polar vortex is locked over Canada and, as the drifts creep up to the windows, you feel foolish being miles and miles from any neighbor or route plowed by a road commission. The generator ran out of gas yesterday. But there's plenty of lamp oil and wood for the stove. Surprisingly, your call for help was met with something like joy. An acquaintance has a snowmobile with enough gas for a one-way trip. They're bringing people, food, supplies, beverages, and, if they heard your plea as the last milliamp slipped from your phone, games. That's right, soon you'll be Gamers Stuck in Snowmageddon. Gamers Stuck in Snowmageddon is a discussion with Northwest Michigan residents, and in this case, like-minded friends, about life, the pursuit of happiness, and the four tabletop games they'd like to get stuck with in a fictitious snowpocalypse. I'm your host, Jim Moratsky, and today, across the interwebs as we all keep our social distance, we're joined by Michael Carter. Mike, welcome to Snowmageddon. Thank you for having me, Jim. Well, it's really great to have you here across all this distance, and uh, we'll get into more of that in a bit. But my first question usually is, uh, how difficult was it for you to choose the four games that you've chosen to take to Snowmageddon, and what criteria did you use? Well, it was very easy to choose the first three uh, because I went off your theme. You gave a, an excellent theme, being stuck in Snowmageddon. Uh, so I figured I was going to be stuck there for at least a winter, if not for the rest of my life. So uh, the criteria I used was uh, I wanted to take four games that would take a very long time to master and that would present a different game, hopefully, every time they were played. Well, that sounds good. Uh, so I hear that you're kind of an outdoor enthusiast, uh, at least around snow. Uh, mm. Are you someone that the stuck in Snowmageddon scenario would apply to? Would you ever find yourself out in, in the wilderness by yourself? Possibly. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a skier uh, in, in Colorado. I like uh, the, the Colorado winters and being up in the high mountains. And I do like going not necessarily into the backcountry there, but off the piste and into the trees and whatnot. So one of the things I like to do while I'm out uh, is to find air times to be alone, places to be alone where you can't see the thousand people rushing by and all you can see is trees and snow and nature and mountains. So it's uh, quite possible. Take one wrong turn and who knows, next thing you know, you're in Snowmageddon. Okay, so let's jump right straight in here. Your first game is one that winds up on many serious gamers' favorites lists. It was designed by Vladich Vadel and originally published in 2006 or so, with the most recent edition published in 2015 by Czech Games Edition. This is Through the Ages. Why do you hope that this is available in Snowmageddon? Well, this, uh, this checks all those boxes. This, uh, this is a thoughtful game. It's, uh, I think, one of it is my favorite Euro-style uh, game after a hundred plays uh, of the thing, because this is a card-driven game. The order in which the cards come out is different every game, and it takes the players down different avenues of development for their respective civilizations. So, a completely different set of opportunities. Uh, offers itself every single time you play and against different opponents. So this is a game that 
can potentially be, and it frequently is, very different from one play to the next to the next. There are there's opportunity for deep subtlety uh, in the game, and you have to be agile uh, as you play through the game. You have to respond to your opponent. If your opponent suddenly shifts from a culture-based strategy to a military-based strategy, you have to counter that and roll with the punches while maintaining your own focus on uh, on offense, uh, if you will. This is not a war game. It's, uh, it's about developing culture, but you have to basically balance four different uh, areas of development for your culture at the same time. And so it really is a very rewarding gameplay experience for, for two or three players. Uh, it's a very long game experience for four players. Yeah, that was going to be one of my next questions because I've, I've heard that it, it gets pretty long. So you're thinking two or three players is the best uh, count for this. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, a two-player game, after you're proficient with the game, you can play a two-player game in two hours 15 to two hours and a half. So it's a, it's a very doable time frame. So for folks that haven't played this before, could you just describe briefly what you know, what are the mechanisms that you're doing? How does a turn go in general? The the broad scope of the game is that it traces the development of your civilization. Each player uh, controls the development of one civilization from antiquity through medieval times, through classical times, and through a modern age with advancing agriculture, production, uh, technologies and wonders of the world and leaders that all have different uh, abilities, uh, shall we say, with the goal of de developing culture. The winner of this game is not the strongest army. It's not the highest tech. It's the culture. It's the civilization that generates the most total culture over the sweep of the game. And all of those other aspects are a means to that end. So a typical turn is that you have so many civil actions to perform research and building actions with and, and recruiting new cards from the card conveyor, and so many military actions with which to build military units or play military cards. The more actions you can have, especially more civil actions you can have, the more you can accomplish in a turn but you have to balance your food production, resource production, idea production, and military strength all off against one another and against your opponent uh, in order to play the game. So what sort of person is best to play this game with? Who, who would you look for in an opponent? Ah, uh, that is an interesting question. Uh, someone who's uh, patient and will will want to play several games and explore the uh, texture, uh, the the deeper texture of the game. Um, this is not a culture of the new game to play it once or twice, form an opinion, and move on and never play it again. That is not how you, a person would get the most enjoyment from it. So, yeah. Uh, I would want to play this with a person that is going to want to play it five, six, ten times, or forever if it's Snowmageddon, uh, <laughs> to, to really explore the, the full space of the game and what it has to offer. So have you played any other civilization-type games, like 
Sid Meier's Civilization or Tapestry, or I know there's a bunch of others. And if so, how does this compare with, with those? Oh boy, that's a that that's a great question too. So I've uh, I've played all of the Sid Meier computer civilization games from their inception back in what 1989. There was a board game version of Sid Meier Civilization uh, that was made. I have not played that, but then there are another there are a whole class of civ based civ building board games. Uh, Avalon Hill Civilization, Advanced Civilization from the early and mid-80s. There is uh, Seven Wonders is a Civ building game, much, much lighter. There's um, Clash of Nations is yep. a recent one that's mm -hmm. a shorter game. That one's also a good game. The reason I, I think I'm attracted to this game so much is that it has crisp mechanics. It has... This, this central mechanism of a card conveyor that comes by and you advance through the ages at the pace of the cards, not at the pace you and your opponent. So you can be overtaken by events if you're not keeping up with the times, so to speak. Most of these other games uh, advance at the pace of the players uh, and so can, can go into corners that are not so good for gameplay. I, I've just seen a, a richer kind of texture emergent from uh, through the ages than uh, from many of those other games. Although I, I enjoy practically all of the Civ building games as well. Oh, Roll Through the Ages. Hey, let's uh, let's take that one. That's a very light game, a 15-minute game with dice. <laughs> yeah, don't forget that. That's great. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about beginnings. How did you start playing games? I think this all starts off in, in high school back in like the early 80s when we, we played Dungeons and & Dragons, and then board games weren't a developed thing back then. There was basically Monopoly and Life, and ugh, uh, and that's all you had, right? But through the 90s, more interesting board games developed, war games, simulation games. In the late 90s, the Euro games started coming that were deep strategy um, and varied themes where you could find a theme that you really enjoyed uh, exploring. So I got into gaming through my circle of friends. Of course, it's the giant nerd circle uh, back in high school and college. I, I suspect that's a common experience uh, with, your, uh, with your listeners here. Then later when I... When I moved to Denver, I was pretty much a Euro player, a light Euro player, and um, uh, Dungeons and Dragons player. And then I met up with uh, a number of groups of people there in that larger city who were much more into the heavier Euro games. And finally, someone got a copy of one of the 18xx games on the table in front of me, and I fell in love with that. Uh, as well, and we'll talk about that later in the uh, in the recording, I believe. So it it's been a lifelong thing since my teenage years, um, all the way up to the present. Um, my tastes have evolved, changed. Uh, some stay the same, some come and go. So it's it's just an evolutionary thing over the years. One episode that I, I would add in here is when I got married back in the, um, the the early 90s, I married into a family with two young kids, uh, th uh, five and a seven-year-old. So I had to kind of start from scratch. That was not a gaming household uh, that I married into. 
so the kids had to, of course, be indoctrinated correctly uh, <laughs> into the gaming culture, right? So we started with things like Skipbo and Uno, maybe a dice game here and there. We graduated to Settlers of Catan, a little more strategy involved, graduated up to Puerto Rico, another fabulous classic uh, board game, to the Avalon Hill Advanced Civilization game that takes like 14 hours to play, um, and on up to, to various other things. Um, and, and both of those kids, they're now in their 30s, and they're really kick-ass uh, uh, adults now. Uh, but they, they took that with them, uh, and I get to, get to play with them uh, periodically uh, even now to this point. So it's formed a, a really nice uh, a bond and an activity that we can all do together. Yeah, that's great that you did that, and I'm I must admit a little jealousy in having players right in your own household. Could you talk a little bit about where did you grow up? What was that community like that you were able to get involved in Dungeons and Dragons and the other beginning games that you talked about? Oh my, okay. You know, I I should go back and and add some to that and give credit where credit is due. Uh, my parents were you know World War II generation folks. And they always played games with their friends. It wasn't the same kind of games. They played bridge and poker. Bridge, of course, is a very heavy game. If you haven't played it, it is a lifestyle if, you're, if you get really off into it. So there was that. And then the fun game was, uh, was poker around the family table with friends of the family. But I grew up in a small town in southern Oklahoma, that has a traffic light and, and 2,500 people uh, on a good day. So it was a very small place, uh, very small classes in the in the high school. I I basically found my fellow nerds uh, in the high school, which you count on one hand. And we did things like we played Starfleet battles. That was the era of Starfleet battles. We played we played Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, we played some other you know, uh, some of the very first kind of Euro strategy games uh, at that point. And that's where it started. And then it carried on through college and, and through later life. So that that's really how it got started for me. I've heard that you uh, read math books for fun. Uh, <laughs> is yeah. that Has that always been true? Or did someone along the way give you some insight that most of the rest of us just didn't get? Oh, as to actually liking yes. math books? Yes. <laughs> no. No, I'm afraid that's a congenital brain defect. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know what that is. That was that's just something that I had from from an early age. I can't attribute that to anything. The desire. I can, however, attribute. Uh, I can't attribute the seed to anyone, but I can attribute the watering and uh, germination of that seed, as is the case with so many people's lives. One very special committed teacher during the junior high era that we had in our tiny little town in southern Oklahoma. What he brought out in, in the classes was he would take you, take the entire class to its limits and let you go as far as you could go. And it was, it was never dry. And, and he took the time with the students to make sure that everybody got everything and would go back over things in the past. So I, I've got to give a lot of credit to him. And in my circle of nerds, I think <laughs> most of them took that man's classes 
and we're equally grateful uh, for that kind of teaching input. That's great. So a little combination of nature and nurture there. That's super. Oh, yeah. It, it definitely took both. I mean, you can't put it where it's not. And then if, if you don't give it a chance to express itself and, and, and nurture it, as you said, then it won't grow. Okay, well, let's move on to your second game here. Um, this is All one right. of the 18xx group of economic games themed around the train industry. Uh, it was designed by Mike Hutton and published in 2013 by GMT Games. And I hope I've got the right game here, but uh, why would you want to bring 1862 Railway Mania in the Eastern Counties along to Snowmageddon? <laughs> <laughs> title everybody's oh. heard of oh it's 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 absolutely ubiquitous everywhere that's true uh, all right so i'm i'm continuing my my theme of begin game variability and you have to adapt to what the other players are doing and counter them that that's the common theme running through all of these games uh that i selected 1862 is one example of a hundred or more uh, games in the so-called 18xx sector, <laughs> if you will. Uh, as you said, these are complex economic and operational games. You, the player, take the role of a 19th century rail baron. So think Carnegie, think uh, Vanderbilt, that portion of our history. It was a time where there was vast opportunity there were not so many laws on the books. The SEC did not exist. Stock market speculation ran rampant. And the technology of the rails, railroading, was advancing at a breakneck pace. So it started with that one little Stevenson's rocket locomotive, I believe, in England. From the, the invention of the steam engine onward into the early part of the 20th century, there was a relentless advancement of technology in the railroading era and a relentless competition to lay track and make money uh, for these large railroad magnates. This particular game uh, is set in East Anglia, uh, in England. Uh, the setting really doesn't matter here. What matters about this game is that there are three types of trains that you have to create effective routes for, earn lots of money, buy your trains at the right time, uh, and as your trains rust away over the course of the game, over the sweep of time uh, involved in the game, you have to be ready for the next great invention, the next set of trains that are ever bigger, faster, and way more expensive. So don't get caught with your pants down. If you can't buy that next train, you go bankrupt and you lose. Uh, and perhaps the other, you know, some other player wins. Along the way, you have to manipulate your stock price uh, and the stock price of your opponents because you can buy shares of stock in them and trash their stock price. But beware, you only have so much capital at your disposal to do that with. So it's an interesting combination of a an economic game coupled with laying tracks and 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 building stations on the board and running trains to make money and deciding whether you pay that money out to your shareholders which makes them happy and your stock price go up or hoard that money in your company so that your company is ready to buy that next big train which makes your stockholders angry and your stock price goes down and it doesn't make you the player any money uh, and of course in the yeah, in the in the theme of the 19th century robber baron, it doesn't matter what the company does. The object of the game is for you to get rich. 
let's keep this clear. It's all about me <laughs> in these games. Um, so getting back to your original question, this game has a lot of begin game variability. There are 20 companies that may possibly form, only 16 of which will start the game, uh, which gives a different starting setup to the game every time you play it. And it also supports solitaire play in case all of your buddies get eaten by the snow zombies <laughs> in Snowmageddon. So that's my, that's my pitch for 1862 in Snowmageddon. You did a good job of explaining the scope of the game is, but uh, what mechanically is going through your mind while you play this game? Do you need to know a lot about stock and economics and things like that, or, or how are you thinking about it? What's going through your head? Well, not as much as you might think. Uh, I I was very intimidated before I played this game the first time, but there are ways to enter the, the 18xx world that are way, way, way softer than you know what your worst fears are. It's really not that bad. But what goes through your head when you're when you're taking your turns here, I need to establish high paying routes on the board for my trains to run. I need to be thinking about what my next train I'm going to purchase is. Am I going to skip over the four trains and save up for the five train and have lesser income between now and the time I get to buy the five train? Or do I want to stock up on all the three and four trains I can hold and make tons of money right now, but maybe when that five train is available, I can't buy it because I've just been paying out lots of money since then. You want to worry about how your stock is doing on the stock market. You also need to worry about the following. And this is, a, this is where the most satisfying, I think, part of the game comes in for many people, is let's suppose someone else at the table has purchased two shares of my company's stock, and my company is not doing so well. Am I going to be able to sell all of my shares in that company, making them the president of this failing company while I got all of my money out of it and dumped it on them and they have to buy it a train? There's kind of dirty dealings in the stock market coupled with the operational uh, opportunities on the board of actually building tracks and making money. So these are the things that are present in your head as you go forward and you try to calculate, am I going to have that $450 come phase five to buy that five train or am I going to be a few bucks short? These are the things that are going through your mind while you're playing uh, one of these games. You're trying to think two turns ahead, maybe something like that. So I've not played an 18xx game, but one of the criticisms I've heard of them is if you make a mistake early on, you're basically screwed and you just never have a chance to catch up. And therefore, it makes it difficult for people to learn because they get so discouraged. Is that true of this game? I think it's a valid criticism. It is. And, and that can be a frustrating thing about 18xx games. It, it absolutely can. Now, we're going to talk about another game you know next or next uh on my list and i'm going to uh i'm going to give you a, a slogan from one of the designers in that game about the beginning of the game and i'm going to keep you on pins and needles but that slogan does apply to 18xx games as well you can cripple yourself at the beginning of the game and, and pretty much never have a chance sometimes you can have a game that starts off so badly that if all of the players but one have chosen poorly, 
and one player has chosen well, the game can be over at the end of the initial auction, in effect. So that is a valid criticism. The way that you get around having that be discouraging is you play with mature players who will help you point things out to you when when those mistakes, you know, when, when someone might make that mistake, uh, those mistakes, uh, a beginning player. And remember uh, to always keep in your mind that the object of the game is to have fun. It's not to crush your opponents and see them driven before you and tie them to the rails before the five o'clock express gets here. Although maybe that is for some people, but those people suck to play with. They really do. You really want to play with, you know, emotionally mature people who are not going to give you flack or, you know, grind you into the ground or make you play out a three or four hour game when it's clear what the answer is. Many times you just want to end the game and say, you know, <laughs> Mike did so poorly here. Jim has won this game. Congratulations, sir. Shake your hand and say, what are we playing now? That do we reset the game and go again? That's really the way to do this. Games are not about death marches; they're about having fun, and that really is the way that you um, want to approach 18xx. You don't want to go with alpha gamers or you know the super competitive people right off the bat. You want to you want to be with people who are going to help you into the game, into the game system. You know, and be just. You know, be be nice. Show you the ropes. Show you where the sharp edges are, where the pointy things are, where the the snake pits are, and help you make good decisions. And then gradually, you 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 take hands off. You make your own mistakes, and the other players don't beat you up about it. That's what you have to have in order to play 18xx games. These are pretty intense games in terms of economics and things like that. I'm wondering, can you learn anything practical for the, the rest of your real life from them? We'll talk a little more later about games' roles in society, but I'm kind of curious to know if you think that you can learn something through these games that you can apply outside of the game. I, I think you can, actually. You can learn to look for when you're vulnerable. You can look to capitalize on opportunities when you're in a strong position. You can learn how to let yourself be patient and wait for your moment to strike and shine when other players are raking in cash with their three and four trains, and you're waiting there in the wings to buy that six train and rust all their old, you know, old crappy trains. So... I think there are some practical kind of character-related things that you can learn by playing these games. And if you play them with the right players, another thing that you can really make stronger in yourself is your sense of sportsmanship. Because if you're with respectful, mature players, you can pull out all the knives, all the bombs, all the dirty, underhanded, horrible tricks and play on one another. And at the end of the game, you can shake one another's hands and say, that was a really fun experience. I love what you did there. Those are the things that you that I think you can learn in, from 18xx games and many of the people who play them. Not all, not all, you know what I mean. Um, but many of the people who play them that can open up you know, new new perspectives on lots of things outside of gaming. Okay, let's talk a little bit about your current situation. You are a software engineer. Uh, how did you get onto that path? 
let's go right back to that man I was talking about in uh, in middle school who who let who let his students uh, explore new things like computers. It kind of started back there. Uh, he he was one person who was uh, who was instrumental in that. And I had a a brother-in-law, the husband of my oldest sister, who was particularly helpful in making sure I had things like model train, a soldering iron, wire cutters, uh, this sort of thing to play with uh, when I was six and seven and eight years old. Chemistry set, erector set, this sort of thing. Uh, he he also played a big, big role in that, of course, as did my father, right? My father, you know, never said, no, you, you shouldn't do that. And, and he would bring things and cooperate with my brother-in-law at the time. And that's that's how I kind of got there. It was through, you know, very patient, uh, generous uh, uh, teachers uh, and parents and relatives. I've seen informal polls that say most board gamers are teachers and programmers because you need to be a process person to play games. Uh, yes. Have you found that to be true? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Um, I think well over 50% of the, the board gaming crew in Denver are software engineers or in, in some way associated with software production uh, or that industry. Uh, a little under half, I think, are not. I'm not I, I wouldn't swear that that's representative across the board, but there is, there is certainly a mechanistic process-based aspect to playing board games and, and games in general, that it, it's more about finding your way through the puzzle or working the process in your favor than it is developing fully lateral thought creativity exercises. So yeah, I, I don't find a lot of musicians uh, in this area, but it, it is, you're right, it's more process-oriented, uh, mechanistic, mechanistically thinking folks that that does make sense so you said that you also like to travel what are your some of your favorite destinations oh boy um my, my favorite destinations certainly include um well the mountains in colorado if you haven't been there they're amazing after we lick this doggone virus uh, and finally, get back to the point where it's uh, it's safe to travel to these uh, these places. You know, folks. You know, you really got to visit there. I grew up in Flatland, right, Oklahoma, Iowa. Didn't really know what mountains were, uh, and it was mind-boggling uh, the first time. You know, seeing real mountains and and what you can do in them. So I love being I love being in the mountains there. I, I like to international do international travel. Uh, been to a bunch of places. Uh, again, that's not something we're gonna, <laughs> we're going to be doing for quite some time either. Uh, I like I'm going to say castles. Uh, I I enjoy visiting ca old castles and military fortifications, uh, like you can see down in Puerto Rico or in Europe, Wales, Ireland, Scotland. The Netherlands, uh, basically in in Europe, um, and and I just I, I love going to new places and learning uh, about new things. Uh, it's uh, again, it's all about the perspective and making things real. You can read about something and know it's real. You can go stand in front of it and you feel it's real. And and I'm not a touchy feely person. 
Uh, I'm not. Uh, I'm I'm pretty straightforward, rational. But um, the, this was kind of driven home to me uh, when when my wife took me on the first international trip we did, and we went to the British Museum in London. We entered the the museum, bought our tickets. Uh, they said, join up with your tour guide over here. So we go. We look at the map. We go through through the atrium. We turn a corner. We go through a doorway. Bam there's the Rosetta Stone in a glass display case right in front of us. People milling around it, having their coffee, there's the Rosetta Stone. That's the time, that, that's the one crystalline moment where it was all brought, kind of brought home. This thing is real, it's right here. It's three feet from me. I've I read about it in books and in history books since I was, you know, <laughs> uh, five years old. I, you know what it represents, but it, it's not real until you stand in front of it and you can see the chisel marks and the scratches and the cracks and the damage, and it's still here 6,000 years later. Uh, and that there's a very visceral impact uh, to experiencing these things like that. So I, I would say I'm, I'm more about that experience right there than any particular place, uh, if that makes sense. I hope that makes sense. That does make sense. Okay, well, let's do some more traveling here. Uh, your third game is a classic Uwe Rosenberg design that first appeared in 2008 and is now published by Lookout Games. This is Le Havre, the very f- definition of a Euro game, I think. What? Uh, why do you hope this is at Snowmageddon? <laughs> Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna stick right with my theme. This game's initial setup consists of shuffling a deck of building card buildings. There are cards with a building that has some resource conversion ability on them. This converts bricks or clay to bricks. This converts wood to charcoal. This converts coal to coke. This converts iron to steel, etc. Those uh, that deck of building card gets split up into three decks uh, in a different order every game, and so you have to play w- against your players um, to work your way through those building decks to accumulate the most points by the end of the game. While there is kind of a central spine to the strategy of this game that revolves around making steel and turning steel into steel ships and luxury liners that are worth a lot of points, there's a lot of give and take with your opponents during the game in the construction of the buildings, the acquisition of the resources, and balancing that against the always different order of the buildings that are present uh, to be gotten through those decks. You have to look at those building decks. Where are the wharfs in this? Because I've got to have a wharf in order to build a ship, in order to bring food to me every turn, because this game is merciless about escalating the amount of food you have to feed your people with at the end of each round. And if you don't build those ships, you're going to lose. Uh, and in order to build those ships, you gotta, you have to build the wharf, you have to get a bunch of wood, you have to convert all these resources in order to build bigger ships, but that will not win you the game. You have to make points. Uh, and that all revolves around steel and luxury liners and shipping uh, near the end of the game. So it's that beginning of the game variability and the reaction 
that you have to dodge and weave against your opponent's strategy and their conduct as they're going along. There's my pitch for this one. Could you just detail a little bit of that player interaction? I, I think there are probably two principal ways that takes place. One is that they may claim the strategic resource that are offered on the board before you do. There are three woods sitting up for offer, and it's my turn. Do I take those three wood now, or do I take the two iron next door and hope my wily opponent ignores the wood, because on my next turn there might be four or five wood there? It's crucial to get good action economy in this game. So there's a push your luck aspect with uh, taking resources or using buildings uh, in the game. And you have to consider what your opponent's strategy is so that you can make a move that's maximally beneficial to you and hinders their strategy. You, You have to know what their strategy is that they're playing. You have to play their game in your head Uh, and run their strategy in your head as you run your game. It's not solitaire at all. Um, So many, you know, particularly recent Euro games have very little player interaction. But Lahav puts you, if not in direct conflict with one another, then pretty close indirect conflict. There are buildings in the game, these resource conversion buildings that I talk about. Only one person can have their token in that building at a time. If you come and put your token into even my building that is converting clay into bricks, and you just leave it there and do other stuff for the next three turns, there's very little I can do about that, and I'm not converting clay into bricks. And maybe my strategy was hinging around building the next three buildings that required bricks, and you just shut me down uh, having done that. So that's the kind of player interaction that you get in Lahav. Would you play specifically to shut other people down, or are you just you know, sort of taking your opportunity and that just happens to affect other folks? Well, you, you have to find the intersection of those two things. You can't win by you, – you won't win against a good player by ignoring them, and you won't win against a good player simply by playing to shut them down. You have to find that middle ground and that balance and push your luck, you know, push your position just enough to keep ahead of them. So it, it's not one of these games where there's one strategy, and if you find the magic bullet you have mastered you've broken the game and you know the first person to get on that rail is going to be the winner at the end of the game there are so many of those games uh, out there right but this is this is not one of them so let's move on to gaming in general you said that you design games uh what sort of games do you design and, and how far do you take that oh <laughs> After the Denver crew got me into the the 18xx crew, uh, scene, I wanted to share that with my gaming buddies here in Iowa, and you know they're not particularly heavy uh, Euro gamers, but they're they're the role play crew that I play with, and I found it, it just occurred to us. I was going on after a game one evening about this is the way 18xx works. You know, this is what's cool about it. And one of the other people across the table, she said, hey, Eberron's got trains. And the other other person, he said, 
you know, we should make a game about that and combine these two things. Um, so I, I must admit, I used that completely shamelessly as a way to draw them into the, <laughs> the 18xx scene. So we designed an 18xx game with a fantasy theme called 18EB. Uh, it's, it's set in the the D&D campaign setting of Eberron. And we pushed that through that design all the way through and then, you know, let the game loose as a, you know, a free, you know, you download all this stuff, print it out, put it together and play it yourself. So we pushed that all the way through. We we will not be publishing that, of course, because it contains copyrighted material from various sources. And, and we acknowledge that there. So we just kind of leave this out there as a, uh, as offering to, to to others as a you know form of respect to the to the genre the two genres uh, if you will that's how far we've taken one now I'm with um, one of my buddies the 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 gentleman and we're designing another game in this series that we'll also have to give away because it's it's themed on something that we cannot publish but these print and plays they're available to the public if they want to find them yeah. Okay, and where where would that be? I can give you a link to include on your website. Okay, super. That's great. So we've had a variety of themes so far in our game discussions. Is theme important to you in a game? It is to me. I have a lot of game buddies, uh, particularly the you know the the heavier crowd. That theme is unimportant or a hindrance uh, in in some cases. But I think because I come, you know, I came from from D and D, where it's all theme. I, I I do appreciate a good theme in a game. Do you think that gaming plays any kind of role in society? Do games matter? Yeah, it does. I mean, games bring people together. It's an activity that's uh, a lot better than sitting in a bar and getting drunk all the time, or you know, engaging in other. <laughs> <laughs> riskier activities or whatnot. Now in the 21st century, it serves the same purpose that Bridge and Canasta did in the middle of the 20th century. You know, our parents and our parents' parents, they played Go Fish and, and Bridge and Pinochle and, and you know, classic games like that as a as a family activity to bring people together. You know, bring the family around uh, and and form a bridge. And the Euro games and and other games have formed exactly that bridge through the 90s and into the 2000s that it occupied during the 1950s and 60s. I think so. Exactly the same purpose. Uh, it's a it's a social axle around which to gather. The games that you've mentioned so far are pretty complex. I went to mm-hmm. look for uh, some playthrough videos about, you know, with 1862, for example, and the videos are five and six hours long. Um, how do you find people to play games of this complexity? That is a very good question. If you're in a large city, there are meetup groups that advertise. Maybe not now, <laughs> during the, the COVID-19 pandemic, um, but up to February. And, you know, once we have our vaccine and we get through this, this current era, that will be back again with a vengeance because people are going to have a, a spooled up need to to, to get together uh, after that. I, I suggest looking for meetup groups uh, to find gaming groups. And in there, you'll find maybe one in 20 people uh, might be willing to play or learn you know, the, these heavier games, maybe one in 10, something like that. You know, many people just like to have lighter, lighter fare. 
It's perfect. You know, the, the object of the game is to have fun and be together and be social. Your taste in games is your own taste in games, right? So you'll have to dig a little bit to find uh, these people. There are online forums. There's bgg.com. Uh, you can look in forums there. There are conventions. Go to your local game convention. Uh, there will be Puffer Billy, uh, Puffing Billy folks there that play anything from light train games. You know, it starts kind of at Ticket to Ride and 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 Irish Gauge, and then there are Crayon Rail games, and and there's you know various various 18xx in there. You go to a gaming convention. That's probably your best bet because you're going to get a concentrated group uh, of those folks playing these games at, at gaming cons. So that's my advice: game cons, meetup groups. Sounds good. Okay, well, your final game here is Legendary uh, yeah. from the notorious Dutch publisher Splatter Spellen. It was published notorious. in <laughs> It was published in 2004 and designed by Jaron Duman and Joris Weersinga, who are basically the only employees at Splatter, I understand. Uh, yes. Why why do you hope that Antiquity comes to Snowmageddon? <laughs> so this is the only one of these four games that I do not own a copy of, and I have played it one time. Um, most of these Splatterspellen games I've played once or perhaps twice. And I don't know why that is, because even amongst heavy gamers, you have to think twice to put one of these on the table. But, you know, if we're going to be stuck in Snowmageddon for the rest of our life, we got time to burn. Well... Hopefully we have time to burn. Maybe it'll keep us warm. Uh, but we've got time on our hands, right? And so why not bring a game that is going to keep you busy chewing on it for a long time? And I picked Antiquity, right? I could have picked Indonesia. I, I could have picked the Great Zimbabwe um, or you know, one of their other games, right? There, there are multiple of these games. These two guys are geniuses. Um, anytime you you see, you can cert, you can find these two gentlemen at uh, large gaming conventions or small gaming conventions from time to time, and if you're lucky, you might get to play a game with them. And it's like going onto a tennis court against Serena Williams or Roger Federer. You know, the, these are class individuals that are way better than you are uh, <laughs> at whatever game you want to play. And you can learn from the masters um, with these folks. Um, so that's the reason I, I, I like the, I like the idea of bringing say antiquity in this case to, to Snowmageddon. There's good people. They're great games. They have huge depth underneath them. Uh, and you can you can spend many 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 plays teasing out the subtle genius that is built into these games. There there's my answer for why that's here. Have you actually played a game with the Splatter guys? Uh, yeah, I've I've met both of them. They came to Denver a few years ago uh, to a convention there. Yaron was uh, slated to come to Tony Fryer and my little railcon uh, this year in April. But I'm sure you can guess uh, without too much uh, effort what happened or didn't happen there in April. We've played a couple of games online with uh, Yaron. I don't think I've played with Yoris before, but uh, you watch what they do. You pay careful attention and try not to get caught by the avalanche. Great guys, though. They're, they're great guys. Lots of fun to play with. 
So what part of this game, it's got like area control, it's got worker placement, it's got polyominoes. Is, yep. is there, is it just the whole together or is, is any part of that uh, something that, that you really like to dig into the most? <laughs> well, it's like it's a fractal game. How many games are you playing when you're playing Antiquity? I mean, seriously. Like you just said, right, you got worker placement uh, on the board. It's your, where do I put my next city to develop it on the board? So there's this sieve aspect to it. it. It has aspects and mechanics from a half a dozen games, and it even has the, the signature mechanic in this game, pollution. Oh, yeah, that's your enemy. <laughs> pollution is your enemy, not your opponent. You will be beaten by pollution more than you will be beaten by your opponent. I mean, where do you get that? Seriously, where? Do, what other games do you get that in? So there, there's there are so many aspects that come together um, in antiquity. So many things you have to balance um, and whatnot. And this is not a, as you said, notorious uh, splatter spell. And the reason that they're notorious, folks that haven't played one of these games, is um, here's a quote from from Yaron Duman when asked about why is it that in in your games it seems like I always lose in the first turn. His response: "Quote, well, if you can't lose in the first turn, then why have one?" Unquote. So, <laughs> um, there, there's no pulling of punches uh, in, in, with, with the rules in these games. It's you, you, you walk the line, and when you fall off, you know it, uh, and and you again, you shake the hand of your opponent across the table and say, "That was very pleasant. What shall we do now? Shall we set this up again and go again?" Um, and eventually, after enough plays, uh, after you've gained enough expertise, then you have these samurai battle on a tightrope type of experiences, and you come out the other end of it, and you, you know, the next day you don't know nor care who won the game. It was just such a magnificent experience to have played it, and that's the experience you're after, isn't it? Uh, especially at Snowmageddon, you know, it, it's it's about surviving. It's <laughs> less about winning. Um, so th there's my pitch for antiquity. But you could equally take that to Indonesia, Great Zimbabwe, uh, food chain magnate, you know, whatever. Are are those games pretty distinct from one another? All the splatter games, or can you tell that the same designers have created them? Uh, the only way that you can tell that those games are related, and I should mention Roads and Boats, that's their most popular or most well-recognized game, I think. Uh, the only way you can tell that those are done by the same designers is once you've played them and you understand the the true evil genius uh, that's baked into them. The mechanics are all different. The themes are all different. The, the gameplay is all different. They're just masterful in different ways. What do you see next for tabletop gaming? Is there any trends or games or anything that you see coming up that uh, that you look forward to or that you're discouraged by? <laughs> uh, well, my my flip answer is uh, yeah, hell yeah. There's a trend. It's on. It, it's it's online gaming via tabletop simulator and board eighteen and 
you know, all of these online gaming applications with uh, a, a video and an audio session through Discord or Zoom or Google Hangouts or whatever, because that's what we're all having to do right now. And and I will tell you that, that my, my gaming is almost exclusively that since February, you know, when, since we all kind of went into lockdown, uh, it's been almost exclusively that. You know, you find ways to play online. The upside of that has been I've gotten to play with folks um, in Europe, across the U.S., people I only have ever met at cons before. I've met tons of new wonderful people uh, by doing this. So uh, if you get into a, a circle of people and in these gaming circles, you can easily get into an international audience. And the people are just so nice. Uh, as a general rule and, and interesting so you can you can play a you can play a game of you know 1882 with people on three continents across 10 time zones and talk about all kinds of great things um, you know with just a little bit of planning that's what's I, I think a lot of that is going to stay around after we finally have our vaccine and come out the other side of, of this crisis. Um, and I think that's a very good thing so that we can you know, just have a wider circle of friends. It's being required of us <laughs> right now, um, in a sense. I mean, there's no w wrong way to do that. You know, it, it's kind of a new meta game to play, right? You can play the game in order to play games with your friends wherever that might might lead you, whether it's you know northern uh, northern Michigan or or Amsterdam or Eindhoven or or Berlin or wherever you, your friends are. We are on a on a different note. We're sort of in the midst of a golden age of board gaming. Uh, some of your younger listeners, you know, who grew up in the '90s or even the 2000s, you know, don't remember a time when all you had was the game of life and Monopoly. You know, both. Those are not really, <laughs> I would argue that those are not games. They're merely activities to pass time. Only teach you one thing. Uh, each game only teaches you one single thing uh, from it. But we're we're living in a, in a golden age of, of board games that come from Europe or, or, or Asia or the U.S. or wherever. The kind of the, the only downside I see right now is maybe there's too many. Maybe there's more quantity than quality. Uh, maybe people are playing too many games one time and moving on to the next new hotness rather than exploring the, the depth and the texture and the complexity of really, really great games that you can't see after one play. So there's my silver lining and dark cloud for you. How do you find a new game if you do? Is it is it through just those personal connections, or, or do you spend a lot of time watching Kickstarter and Board Game Geek or things like that? How do you pick a new game if you're going to pick a new game? Honestly, I spend almost no effort uh, doing that. There, Like I said, there's a constant tsunami of new games coming out all the time. BGG.com, game conventions, Kickstarters, YouTube playthroughs. I mean, there are a number of, um, <laughs> there's any number of YouTube channels out there that plays games, you know, from two-player games to, to, to heavy games, to lighter fare, to D&D, &D, to whatever. I mean, we, we have an embarrassment of riches uh, in terms of ways to learn about new games. So for me, it just kind of comes incidentally. 
uh, through mostly through friends, uh, but sometimes through seeing something new at a con. So my last formal question for you is this. Um, the snowmobile that was coming to bring you your games while you were stuck in Snowmageddon had to cross a river on its way, and as it hit the far bank, three of the games you've chosen bounced out and were swept away downstream in the river. So oh, as you, that's not fair. Oh. As you unpack, which of the th- four games that you've chosen are you hoping is still there? Through the ages. Through the ages. Okay. Yep. Well, that's that's a great uh, great pick. So, Mike, uh, Michael Carter, thank you so much for joining us here at Snowmageddon today. It was super interesting, and uh, we really appreciate you playing along with us here. I was pleased to be here. It was a lot of fun, and thank you very much for the invitation, Jim. That's it for this episode of Gamers Stuck in Snowmageddon. Thanks again to Michael for being a good sport. Links to the games and other things we discussed can be found on the podcast website, GameInSnow.com. Website hosting is sponsored by Archipelago Creative, LLC, makers of Mackinac Island Treasure Hunt card and board games at MackinawTreasure.com. This nice music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Look for more episodes of this podcast at anchor.fm slash GameInSnow. If you have comments about this show or want to suggest or be a guest, email me at gameinsnow at gmail.com. I'm Jim Maratsky. Thanks for listening. <laughs>